Coaches, what is up? Thank you for tuning in to Keep Your Pads Down, where we are a podcast devoted to the men in the trenches. Before we get to our guests, this past week I tweeted out that we were looking for recommendations and referrals for coaches who you would like to hear on this podcast. And I got a bunch of great feedback, and I want to thank those guys who responded. Like I said before, this is your podcast. So if there is someone you would like to hear, message me on Twitter or send me an email to kypdpodcast at gmail.com. I know at this time of year that, that time is at a premium for coaches. So if you're wondering what type of commitment it would take to be a guest on this podcast, well, it's really not that much. Basically, all being a guest on this podcast requires of you, time-wise, is about an hour on the phone uh, as we talk some ball. That's it. It's really simple. So anyway, keep those names coming. I can't promise that everyone you recommend will be on the podcast, but I will never turn out a good referral and appreciate your help. Okay, so let's get to today's episode with a guest who has been coaching football for 30-plus years, with most of that being in Texas, a guy who is an expert in his field and has a ton of experiences He's going to share with us today, and a coach who has had a huge impact on the lives of his players and the coaches he has worked with. With that, I'm thrilled to welcome Coach Reb Brock, Director of Strength and Conditioning at Dell Valley High School, onto the podcast today. Coach Brock grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and played ball at Glendale Community College before transferring to the University of Indiana to play linebacker and D-line. Coach Brock began his coaching career at Thunderbird High School, his alma mater, there in Phoenix before moving over to his other alma mater in Glendale Community College as a linebacker and strength coach, where he helped the Gauchos win an NGCAA National Championship in 1988. From there, Coach Brock moved to New Mexico Highlands University, where he was the de- defensive coordinator and strength coach before heading to Texas to coach football, powerlifting, and track at Florence High School in Florence, Texas. In 1999, Coach Brock moved on to Coppers Cove High School, where he coached linebackers, D-line, and strength and conditioning before becoming the defensive coordinator and assistant athletic director in 2007, positions he held until 2018 when he moved on to Dell Valley High School to become the director of strength and conditioning there. Coach Brock has been a certified strength coach for 25 years and has a wealth of knowledge and expertise in the area of training and developing athletes. And today we're going to discuss his philosophy when it comes to strength training and how he alters his program to meet the needs of his athletes who are in season, something we as football coaches should all be interested in as we look for ways to keep our players strong and healthy throughout the next several months of the season. So here we go. Let's jump right in with Coach Reb Brock on episode 25 of KYPD. It's a real honor to welcome one of the best coaches in the business and a man who has meant a lot to many coaches associated with this podcast. So, Coach Brock, welcome to the show. I'm so glad we could make this happen. Well, thank you, Ty. I appreciate you inviting me on. And uh, it's an honor to get to, to share information and stuff like this. It, that's how we learn as coaches is to, to listen to other coaches. And, and Grant, you might get one. You know, my goal always when I was – a clinic or something like that, and some people go and they'll be there and they'll say, oh, "I didn't get that much." Well, I've always—it's always been my opinion that if you if you one thing the whole time, it was worth your time because right. that's something you didn't know, and, and it, you don't know what kind of an impact that's going to have on you down the road. But so I always always tried to shoot out to, to learn one thing. Well, I know if these guys listen today, will will we'll really 
uh, pay attention. They'll definitely learn a whole lot more than one thing, and I'm looking forward to uh, to what you have to say today. So you're currently the head strength coach over there at, at Dale Valley High School, just east of Austin. But you've been at this coaching gig for a while now, or been you know been coaching for a while now. So I guess why don't you start by catching us up to speed with your background and how you got into coaching football and becoming a strength coach in the first place? Okay. Well, I grew up in, I was born in Texas, which, you know, when you're coaching here, it's a saving grace to have to have your birthplace in Texas. I found that out when I came back, because uh, if you're not from here, a lot of times, you know, you're always, you're always kind of an outsider. I was told by a coach one time that the only reason that he called me on my resume, because all my experience and stuff was outside of Texas, was that he saw I was born in Dallas. <laughs> so I said, okay, so... Uh, but I, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. My dad was a, a doctor, and that's where he went to intern, do his internship and residency and whatnot. And we stayed out there. And so I grew up in Eric in Phoenix, um, graduated from Thunderbird High School, which would be the equivalent of a 6A here in Texas. Uh, you know, back in those days, they called it, we were only, we were the biggest classification, but it was a 3A. But we had 2,700 kids in school. So, oh, wow. you know, that'd be a 6A school here. So, um, played ball out there, uh, played linebacker, fullback in high school. Uh, Arizona's not, it's just now getting, it's still not a very heavily recruited state because it's just not a big population base. So, uh, you back, you know, now I think last year they had 71 kids signed D1 out of high school. Well, Texas had 451. Yeah. So kind of goes to show. So, uh, back then hardly anybody got recruited. I mean, even the big state schools, Arizona State and University of Arizona, would go to California and places like that. And so the junior college system was big there. And so uh, you'd go to JUCO for two years, and then everybody and their cousin came in and recruited our junior colleges because they were some of the top in the country, which never made sense to me. I, I couldn't figure out why not just come recruit us out of high school and yeah. get us in your program for two years, and we'd right. be that much better. But well, so I went to, uh, after graduating from Thunderbird, uh, went to Glenville Community College and, uh, played football there for two years. And, and, uh, coming out of Glendale, I was recruited by several places and, uh, I chose to go to Indiana University, uh, in, uh, in Boymington, uh, Big Ten school. And, and, you know, I'd never been there. I didn't know anything about it. And so I went there and, and, uh, I played there for, I was there, I registered my first year there and played the next two. And, uh, it was a great experience. Um, I learned more, you know, you, you talk about people that influence you and stuff. And I had some coaches in high school. Uh, my high school coaches, Mike Clark and, and Ernie Dora were big influences on me, you know, to coach and to, and even playing. And, the, and a guy who had been my coach my junior year and then took the job at the junior college and was my head coach, Chuck Santanas. You know, they all had big influence on me, but probably my biggest influence as a player, and it really impacted my coaching as well. I was at Indiana three years, and I had three head coaches. Oh, wow. Uh, Lee Corso was the head coach that recruited me there. Uh, and then Sam White, who was in the NFL for a lot of years after that, he was there one year. He'd come from the, from the Bill Walsh and the 49ers and then coached us for a year and then was gone. Uh, and then... Uh, Bill Mallory came in my last year, and, I, and I'll be honest, Sam White, I'm not a big fan of his. I mean, he was a successful coach, but just the way he did things and everything, I probably learned more not what to do or what not to do from him than, than anything. Yeah. 
about people and stuff like that. But Coach Mallory came in and he met with each one of us, and, and so I stayed. And I was only with him for a year, and but it was you know probably the most impacted year of my life uh, up to that point. Um, this you know he was he's an old school guy, played for Eric Parsi again at, at uh, Miami of Ohio, uh, coached for him there. He coached uh, for Woody Hayes at Ohio State. He coached with Bo Schembechler, so he was one of those guys. Uh, matter of fact, all three of his sons played for Bo at Michigan. Uh, he was just he was an old school football guy, and uh, and we learned, you know, a lot of tough just being tough and 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 how to work hard, and and uh, he treated everybody the same. I don't care if you were the number, you know, one hundred five on the team or number one on the team. He treated everybody the same, and, and I always respected that. And uh, and he just said his his whole thing was keep plugging along, and. Uh, you know, and, and like our first year, my, my last year with him and my first, his first year there, they were 0-11. But he told us that, hey, you know, what we did here set the foundation because, you know, there was a couple games we could have won, and we're like on the four-yard line, and he could he, if he kicks a field goal, we win. Yeah. He wouldn't kick a field goal. He, ran, he said, we're in the Big Ten. If we're on the four-yard line and we got a first down and we can't run it in the end zone, we don't deserve to win the game. Wow. And so, you know, I, I learned that. And so that from there on, you know, I think they went to eight or nine bowl games in his career, there, 10, something like that. And uh, But I learned a lot. Uh, graduated from there, 1985, and, and went back. And I had it. You, you, do, you look back in your future, everything happens for a reason. I know that. But you also make some choices that are probably not real smart. One of them was I had an <laughs> opportunity to stay there and, and be a GA for them. And I chose not to because I, you know, I've seen some guys that had done that before me who had come in. Well, you know, you're out drinking beer with a guy one Friday night. The next Friday night you're coaching and tell him how bad that is. Yeah. And, yeah. and I just, I never, I never felt comfortable doing that. I didn't, I didn't think that was the right thing to do. So I went back to, to Phoenix uh, and uh, I coached at my old high school, uh, had a different head coach there, another guy that I learned quite a bit from. His name was Owen Dionovich. Uh, there's a, I'm not sure where it's at, but my, it's a, there was a list of the top 10 dirtiest offensive linemen to ever play the game, and he was on that list. Oh, really? Wow. And uh, like with Conrad Dobler and all those guys, I mean, he was he was a big old dude, nasty. Uh, played and coached in the in NFL uh, or the, actually, he was in the old AFL, uh, coached in the CFL, coached major college, and he, you know, he was coaching high school there. And learned quite a bit from him, but I learned, you know, I went out there, and, and uh, you know, it was just it was different than when I played there. I realized looking at it from the other side, basically, they really didn't care about extracurriculars and athletics out there. Um, they didn't, you know, I mean, like at that point, we only had two coaches on staff that were on, on campus and the rest of us were stipend coaches. You know, I worked three or four jobs so I could coach, uh, you know, cause they didn't have any teaching jobs at the school and all that. Cause people would get tenure and then they wouldn't leave, you know, they just stay and squat on those jobs and, and you couldn't, if they didn't like Texas work, you're going to coach. You got, it's a dual contract. They right, didn't have that. Right. So Coached a couple of years there, and then one of my former coaches is from the junior college. Got the job at, at Glendale. His name is Joe Kirsting, a really good guy, and so he asked me to come there and coach. And I was there five years, learned 
unbelievable. You know, I'm 25, 26 years old, and and I go there, and and uh, you know, I'm, I'm every you know they say you know I was this really good coach, and I look back on it, and I'm, I was not, I was a you know I was I coached with emotion, but I really wasn't a great coach, you know, knowledge wise, I thought I was, but you continue to learn, and uh. I was with him and it was a great opportunity because, and I didn't know this, you know, you're 25, 26 years old. And these guys, he'd coached at, at, at Northern Arizona and at University of Arizona. And so he had some contacts. And so these guys would come in and re- recruit our kids in the spring and in, in the fall. And when they would come in, after they'd watch practice or whatever, we'd you know finish up the office. And there was this little, little pub down the road called the bench warmer. And a couple of our coaches would, frequent that place and, and go in there. And so we'd go in there with these guys and they would talk football and draw stuff on cocktail napkins and stuff like that and, and drink a couple pitchers of beer. And so I'm, I'm in there, you know, I'm 25, 26 years old and, and I'm sitting with these guys learning football. And I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, one of those guys was a guy named Andy Reed. Uh, wow. One of those guys is a guy named Dirk Cutter, who's the OC yeah. for the Falcons now and been the head coach. Yeah. Uh, one one of those guys was Billy Callahan, who's been the head coach of the Raiders and the O line coach for the Cowboys and been in the league. Brad Childress, who who was with uh, Andy for a long time with the Packers and the Eagles and, and was the head coach of Minnesota. Those were all his friends. They all coached together at Northern Arizona, and then they'd gone other places. But when they came back to recruit. We'd sit in there and draw football. Dwayne Aquino was at the University of Arizona at that time, wow. secondary coach. And so I'm sitting there just listening to these guys talk and, hey, well, if you did this, what, what about this? And yada, yada, yada. And I didn't realize the education that I was getting. Yeah. And uh, it was, it, you know, looking back on it, it was really pretty outstanding. And so I coached there for five years. We won the national championship in 1988. We were ranked in the top 15 in the nation three times. Uh, it gave me an opportunity. I thought I was ready. Probably really wasn't, but it was good. Uh, I got off of the defensive coordinator position at New Mexico Highlands University in, in Las Vegas, New Mexico. It was a Division II school in the Rocky Mountain Athletic Conference. And uh, went there and, and coached for three years. And and uh, in that time, my parents had moved back to Texas and I had recruited the Panhandle and South Plains. And so I would go into these schools and they've got better facilities at a 3A high school than anything I've seen since Indiana. And I'm like, man, if I get out of, you know, if I get out of coaching, I don't need to move back to Arizona. I need to move over here. And so after the 1994 season, I, uh, I resigned my position there and, uh, we moved to Texas. Didn't have a job. Uh, didn't really, I mean, parents lived over in Palestine, but didn't have a job, didn't know anybody. Uh, moved to Round Rock, Texas and started, you know, sending out resumes and whatnot and, and wound up getting hired at Florence right up the road. And, uh, it was a situation that was, you know, again, one of those learning things you don't know. You know, you go in there and it's a small, it'd probably be 3A2 now with the way things are. Mm-hmm. And uh, went in, and and uh, they, you know, people joke. You, you drive through Florence, and there's a sign out front that says "Caution: Slow Children at Play." <laughs> and uh, you know, they, that's about true. I mean, they just they've never been successful. Uh, great kids, great people. 
um, but they, they just they didn't know how to win. And I was there for four years and probably wouldn't have been there for four years, but uh, you know, I had another opportunity to go back and coach college pretty much right away. But I, I wanted to, unexpectedly going through a divorce. Uh, we'd moved here in, in February and all of a sudden I was notified in late, right before the season started in late July, early August that I was no longer going to be married. And uh, I would, I thought about it. I said, you know, if I, if I do this, if I go coach college or whatever, I can't, you know, I can't be there for my kids or whatever. And, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't about to give them up. So uh, had a little bit of a custody situation, but wound up getting, I wound up getting primary custody of all three of my boys. And so I stayed there and, and I had a six-year-old, a four-year-old and a three-year-old. And I'd load them up in the truck every day. And we'd drive the 30 miles to Florence and coach all day and all teach and coach all day and all evening. And I'd feed them and load them up and take them home. They'd be asleep. I'd carry them into bed and put them in bed and wow. get up the next morning and do it all over again. Wow. Uh, so, but the people there were really good. Uh, I learned a lot because I started the powerlifting team there. They, I never, I wasn't a powerlifting guy. I lifted for athletic enhancement, but I wasn't a power lifter. But I started the, the program there. And then back in those days, uh, um, there was UIL didn't let you do stuff in the summer. Well, so as soon as track was over, you weren't legally allowed to work with your kids. And so, I sit there trying to figure out what to do. And I just, I recently learned more about uh, Olympic lifting and stuff like that. Found out after about 10 years of college strength coaching, uh, that I had been teaching the power. I'd learned the power plane wrong and I was teaching it wrong. And so I, I was kind of excited about learning how to do stuff right. So I started a USA weightlifting club in Florence and I would take the kids to competition. We hosted competitions. And uh, that way, I was we could legally train year round, and so I did that. And uh, was there for four years, and then moved to Copper's Cove in 1999. Uh, coach Southern, at, who's at Huntsville now, he was the DC and linebacker coach, and he needed the freedom to be able to move around and coach the rest, look at the rest of the positions, and see, he needed somebody to coach linebackers, and so he brought me in, and I coached linebackers and did the strength stuff, and I did that for. Uh, until 2007, he, he had left after the 01 season and went to Marshall. Uh, and then uh, Howard McMahon, who had, he left, he had been on staff and left when I came in. He had gone to coach college football. He came back, and he was my DC from uh, 02 through 06 season. And he left and took a head job down at Swiggerville Conley, and then I became the, the defensive coordinator And uh, from 07 through last June when I resigned. And that's kind of where I'm at today. I, I got the job at Del Valley. So, well, and coach, um, you know, you mentioned in your bio really being interested in strength training at a young age. Uh, I think even as early as the age of 12, you started training. And so, I guess, where did that love of strength came, uh, strength training come from? Well, you know, my my dad, he bought me one of those old weight sets, you know, that you bought at Sears that had the, the plastic, cement-covered plastic, yep, yep. Uh, covered with plastic weights and whatnot. And so I started trying to lift weights, didn't know what I was doing. And uh, him, you know, realizing he didn't want me to get hurt and stuff like that. He didn't, you know, they never lifted weights when he was growing up, really. So 
he took me to this place. He did he kind of research, and there was this guy named John Cole who had a facility over in Scottsdale, and um, which was across town quite a ways. But uh, he got me signed up over there. And Cole was a guy who had been a he was from the the Phoenix area, and he uh, he had been a, a thrower in high school and in college through at Arizona State. He was a world class thrower. Uh, he trained in Olympic lifting, and then when powerlifting started in the late 60s, early 70s in this country, he got involved in that and was, was real good. And he was really one of the first strength coaches ever hired. Uh, Eric, Frank Cush hired him at Arizona State like 1969. Uh, and so, but through his, uh, his interaction and with back in those days with the Soviet Union athletes and uh, Eastern Bloc country athletes, he he learned a lot about tra- the training systems that they were using, and he had, he started applying those at his place. I didn't, I didn't know that. I was 12 years old. But my dad just took me there so I would learn how to do it right. And I was always a guy that I wasn't real big. You know, like I think I was like 121 pounds as a freshman or something like that. And, and I started, you know, I, I started lifting when I was 12 and, and went – and like I said, Coles was way on the other side of town, so we went there for a couple of years. And then when I and then I had to, I didn't have to ride the city bus there or whatnot to get there. And then after my sophomore year, we moved a little bit to a place that was a little bit further away. And so I, you know, start I took what I learned from there, and then I started reading, you know, and and there was no books because all during that time all of our research was going to like heart health and stuff like that. I mean, I remember going to the bookstore and finding a book and it had been written like in 1966. That was the most recent book. And this is in the mid seventies. And it talks about, you know, you do one set of 10 of these exercises, you don't squat past a quarter squat, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so to be honest with you, the best, the best, uh, information out there was in muscle and fitness magazine and powerlifting usa and so i would read those they'd show you know all the the different um, you know bodybuilders and stuff like that and they'd occasionally have some some pure strengths of powerlifting would talk articles about their power about squatting and deadlifting and whatnot and so for about two years there my junior and senior year in high school and my freshman year at the junior college i was writing workouts for myself and for other guys on our team based off what I was learning. So at that time, they were probably all, they were more, uh, I was doing some of the stuff I'd learned from Cole, and then and then a lot of that bodybuilding, they had a lot of bodybuilding to them. And uh, just because I, that's what I was reading, that kind of stuff, the rep schemes and, and multiple single joint movements and stuff like that. And then uh, my sophomore year in college, a guy opened a gym on our side of town, and uh, his name was Jim Mayer, and he had been a protege of Cole. He had been a he had been a big time high school, been an all state baseball player, all state football player, uh, state champion shot putter and discus thrower. I mean, he is all that, and uh, he had gone to work for for Mayer and learned a lot of stuff. And he was in he was a firefighter now, and he had a he owned his own gym on the, on the you know they only work twenty four and they're off forty eight, and so he opened a gym. And uh, he was a he was a national level power lifter, and so I started training there. And he basically then I started I understand stood better after doing the reading and stuff 
he was using a lot of the same stuff learned at Coles as far as the, the programming and whatnot. And so, uh, you know, I had to, I had to lift all through high school just to make myself. I was honorable mention all state my junior year. I was first team all state my senior year, uh, and linebacker. I could run pretty well, and but I, I wasn't very big. I weighed 181 pounds my senior year in high school. Wow. And, uh, and, and then, but I kept, then I kind of hit a growth spurt and got, I weighed my freshman football season, I weighed 205. And then my uh, sophomore year, I was up to like 218. And, uh, and then it kept going. But I, before it was because if I wanted to play football, I, that's what I had to do to be successful. Yeah. yeah. And so I didn't know it. And, and that, you know, and I'd always, you know, when you're a kid, everybody's going to play in the NFL. Right. You know, that's your goal. You're going to play right. in the NFL. Well, you know, about the time you're, you know, 18, 19 years old, you're realizing, hey, that may not, you know, I'm going to a junior college right now. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not at Michigan or Arizona State or wherever, UT. And so maybe I need to, what, what's plan B? And, and I'd always, even as a little kid, you know, I, I lived on the street and there was these, these kids down the street that they all hung together. And then there's these, three brothers across the street from me and I had a little brother and those kids were kind of the outcast kind of kids. And so I hung out with them and I would football plays. I would make like an actual playbook, draw plays, X's nose when I was probably 11 years old, 12 years old. And I my group of five guys, we would play and we would practice. We would practice our offensive plays and we'd do all that stuff. And we would play those kids from down the street. And we beat them sometimes, you know. And so I was already coaching back when I was like 11 years old. Yeah. You know, and then writing workouts, and then, and then uh, my, you know, when I was at, when I was in Indiana, I was home for the summer. Back in those days, you didn't stay up there unless you were flunking. So I was always passing my classes. So I, I'd be go home in the summer. And so my junior college coach was going to be gone for something for about two weeks during their they, they had like summer not practice, but kind of like, kind of like our summer drills we have now. Right. And he said, Hey, I need you to coach linebackers for me. I know you'll do it right. I, and I did it. And the other coaches, I guess, told him, said, Hey man, this guy's really good. We need to, you know, as soon as he's done, you need to hire him. And so, I, you know, I was coaching even back then and, yeah. uh, you know, writing programs as far as strength stuff goes. So I, I guess I've been doing that most of my life, but I just, my passion for it was because I saw how it transformed me. Yeah. Is in strength training, and so I've just, you know, I've always done that. I've taken the guys that maybe aren't don't have all the natural ability and stuff, but I always find it intriguing to be able to try and build them into something that and give them the confidence to do something they would have never thought they could do. Well, coach, let's let's jump into that 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 training philosophy that that again, as you said, really began as uh, when you were just a, just a kid. You know, you were the strength coach there at, at Coppers Cove for a long time. You've been a certified strength coach for 25 years, and now you're the director of strength training uh, there at um, at Dale Valley. So, describe your your philosophy when it comes to training athletes, and then where did that philosophy originate from? Well, you know, like I said, that came from when I when I got back from college. I went to I was coaching, but I had to have multiple jobs. Well, one of the jobs I got, Jim Mayer hired me. And uh, he hired me. He he had a company, and he was still a firefighter at the time. But there was one of the top sports medicine clinics at facilities in the nation at that time was there in Phoenix. 
and they are Dr. Richard Emerson was the, the ortho for the Phoenix signs and whatnot. He'd been sending people to mayor for years because he would see that when they got done with PT, they'd say, hey, normally they'd say, hey, you're done, you're released. And they, there was like 80% re-injury occurrence. And so he started sending, when they got done with PT, he would send them to mayor for muscle rehabilitation. In other words, the next step in the rehabilitation program. And that had never been done. Well, when he opened that clinic, he brought Mayor in. And Mayor, because I knew his system and stuff, it was one of the guys that got hired. And that, that was had a huge impact on my, on my strength training as well. One, because I'm learning from him. But the rehab aspect of it, we, I worked with everybody from, you know, Joe, who works for the Department of Highway Maintenance and uh, the Phoenix Sun or... Uh, you know, I worked with Heather Farr, the late Heather Farr, who was one of the top LPGA golfers uh, back at that. You know, Todd Chalice, uh, the Phoenix Suns. I mean, I did all the rehab on Kenny Gaddison, who wound up being the top six man in basketball for years. But we didn't, there were no protocols. All this stuff that, you, when you go to PT now and they do all that stuff, we developed those. And they, there was two physical therapists that, that figured out you know, a lot of the therapists were in there patting themselves on the back on how great they were. Because when I got there, an ACL took 20, 18 to 24 months to rehab. Well, then we got it down to 18. Then we got it down to 15. Then we got it down to 12. Well, now it's, you know, six to eight months most cases. And so we kept, you know, the, we would, these therapists would bring these guys in and they'd say, you know, hey, don't do this, don't do that. You know, no squats, no no, nothing, anything like that. No closed chain kinetic activity. Well, we had looked when they walked out of the room, bam, we were doing leg presses. We were doing body weight squat. We were doing all this stuff because my boss believed in it, knew that was the best thing. And so we wrote these protocols. I mean, when something didn't work, we scratched it out and started again. Yeah. And so all that kind of stuff. Now that's like when they talk about ACL recon, those guys went on, those two therapists went on to the Scripps Institute in California, which was the top place in the world at that time, still is, I think. And they've gurus. So if you read a, an article on ACL reconstruction, those few cats wrote it. And they worked with us on the, the protocol. And so it was really cool. So I learned all that kind of stuff, which has been a huge in my, in my strength training. And, you know, to be able to, now, now you hear all the time, you hear people talk prehab. That's a term that I learned that we developed. We, we, I don't know if we developed it, but we started coined it back in, in 1987, 88. And, you know, basically what prehab is, is let's, let's get things fixed before they break. Right. And, and so it was, you know, I learned, I learned all that and all the techniques. I learned all the strength stuff I learned. And then, and I, and then I became my senior year, I'd become a, I saw, I was doing an interview for a class this, I, you know, it was a burner class. It was a class I didn't need. I was a senior, fifth year senior and needed some, a class so I could get enough hours for my scholarship. And it was this intro to business class. And uh, one of the things we had to do was go interview, you know, pick a, a career and go interview. Well, I said, well, you know, strength coaches were, they're almost non-existent. There's only maybe 10 or 15 of them in the country. Well, one of them was at Indiana University, Bill Montgomery. So I go to his office to interview. Well, sitting on his desk is a is a man a journal from the National Strength and Conditioning Association. So I start while I'm waiting for him, I start thumbing through that and I'm looking at it. I said, man, it's pretty cool. Why? They didn't. They were so new. They didn't even have like a 
you know, the, the cards that you tear out and fill out to become a, a member. Yeah. They didn't have those. So I had to work, look on the title page and get their mailing address and whatnot and wrote them a handwritten note on newspaper and put a check in it and mailed it to, to Nebraska. Wow. Because that's where they were located. Yeah. And so, you know, I got involved in that and, you know, started learning. Like Boyd Epley at that time was the guy, I mean, at Nebraska. Well, then I come to find out that I start talking about Boyd Epley and this and that at work and, and, uh, and mayor says, yeah, said, yeah. Cause Boyd was from Phoenix. He said, yeah. He said, he trained with us. John trained him. John Cole taught him how to lift. So all the stuff that Boyd Epley started doing at Nebraska back in the seventies and all that, he learned from John Cole who taught the same guy that I, that taught me. And so there was so many, cause I noticed there were so many, you know, things in our programming and it would be similar when I would read stuff about Nebraska. Right. And so, uh, that's where it originated. And basically what it was, and I've made, obviously I've learned some, uh, uh, it's evolved over the years, but you know, you want to build the best athlete possible. Okay. Well, you know, there's some people that are Olympic lifting based and they think that, man, that's the end all be all. And then there's some people that are powerlifting based, and that's the end all be all. And then back for, you know, nowadays it's not so much. Now people see the value that back then, oh, you know, bodybuilding, that's not, that's not helping you be a better athlete. Well, I learned because of all the stuff that I was involved with and when I was doing my own readings and whatnot, that to build an athlete, I need to, I'm going to use Olympic lifting movements. I'm going to use claims or claim variations when possible. I'm going to use a snatch and the jerk, those kind of things, because they're explosive ground-based multi-joint movements. Uh, I'm going to use powerlifting, you know, squats, bench or bench press, pulls, because they build absolute strength. Yeah. Which you need absolute strength as much as you need explosive strength. And then where the bodybuilding comes in is because they're mostly single-joint movements. Because they bodybuilders work for, for muscular balance, for symmetry. Well, if you don't have muscular balance, now everybody knows this. Now everybody's talking about, you know, I've been saying for years, and in my programs, you go back, and I'll pull up the program from 1988, and we had more pulling, more rowing than we had pressing. Well, now everybody does that because you've got to have more pulling than you do pushing for muscular balance. Right. And that's where, you know, the bodybuilding comes in, the single joint movements. I can isolate a joint. I can use an exercise to isolate the posterior deltoid, which is going to help stabilize. Because the shoulder is in a, it's a, you know, high-speed collisions are not good for the body. Well, if I've got big muscle on one side and nothing on the other side, guess what's going to happen to that shoulder? It's going out the back right. or vice versa. So by using single joint movements of bodybuilding, I can isolate and I can, you know, as an accessory movement, I can build muscular balance, which I want to do. And then, of course, the prehab techniques and stuff that I learned from rehab and whatnot, you know, functional strength, uh, core, basically core and joint stability through muscular balance. You know, just picking football, for example, you've got to be muscular have muscular balance at, at the shoulders, knees, ankles, and hips for sure. I mean, it helps to have it all over those areas. You better have it. And, and there's a difference between mobility and stability. You know, an a, a joint like the ankle or the hip or the shoulder that moves in multiple planes in multiple directions, that needs to be mobile. 
If it's not mobile, if you have limited mobility, then you have problems. You're going to have problems. Uh, we're like at the, at the knee and the, the lumbar spine, they're meant to make, you know, your knee goes one direction. It either flexes or extends. That's it. And yeah. same with your hip. It's your hip. It's either, flat, you know, when you're, I mean, your lower back, you're either flexing or you're extending. That's it. So those need to be stable. You want to build the musculature around them to stabilize those so that you don't, if you don't have a stable knee, you have an ACL tear or whatever. If right. you don't, if your low back's not stable, you're going to blow discs. You right. know what I'm saying? Right. So, you know, that's, I want to do all that stuff within, within my training. That's going to be a part of my training. And then one thing that I, I started doing years ago, actually got the, the, the idea out of uh, Muscle and Fitness Magazine, they did a, they done this article about a guy named Anatoly Bondarchuk, who was a, who was a great Soviet thrower, hammer thrower, and discus thrower, and uh, back in the Olympics and stuff. Well, he had hurt his back and he couldn't squat, and so he, but he had to do something, so he started doing weighted step ups. And this was back, I believe, 1988 that I read the article. And so he would do, and what it did, it puts half the load on your back that's squatting because you can't have put as much weight on there. And he was able to continue continue uh, competing at a world-class level by doing that. Well, I started thinking about it. You know, a football player, if I'm running or if I'm in running back or wide receiver or something like that, a lot of times I'm planting and cutting. I'm, I may not have both feet on the ground at all the time. Yeah. So – I wanted to train them individually because if you train something bilaterally only, if you have one side is stronger than the other, whatever you may be, you already have an imbalance where you may create a larger imbalance. Yeah. But when you, when you're doing a step up or a, a single leg squat, there ain't no, there ain't no covering it up. I mean, you either, you, you got it or you don't. And yeah. so I started doing those back in the eighties is a mainly with football players and, and basketball players at that time just because they play a lot of their game on one foot. And I wanted them to be stable with the knee, you know, and, and that was the primary reason I did that. Yeah. So how does your training program change for athletes who are in season? Uh, football is getting ready to start. Um, I'm, I'm assuming y'all will still be lifting and training throughout the season, even though you're practicing. So let's take football as an example. How does your training program for those guys change now that they're getting ready to be in season? Well, first thing, whenever I'm writing a program for whatever sport or, or athlete, you know, I have to, I've got to do a needs analysis. What do they need to be successful? Yeah. Especially in high school because during, like when you guys, you guys are about to start football, you have eight hours of practice time. That's all the UIL allows. Well, you and I both know that you're pushing every, every minute of that because you've got film study. Yep. You've got practice. You've got walkthroughs. You need to, they need to continue lifting weights. So time becomes an issue, and so, but you. So I don't want to have any flop on that program. I need to, it's got to be bare bones what they what they need. Yeah. Uh, and then it, it, part of it is on their ability and training age. And it, when I say training age, I'm talking primarily experience. You know, you're a kid that's a junior, or senior for y'all who's been training since seventh grade. That, you know, they have far more experience than that incoming seventh grader or even an incoming seventh or eighth grader has. They don't have a lot of training experience, so things need to be different. And then, you know, I've got to look at, you know, do, some, do you have guys that have injuries or, or previous injuries or whatnot? 
and then the, the bottom line is, you know, available space and equipment. You know, I mean, I don't know how big how big y'all's weight room. It's an under, uh, so it's a it's a weight room that's under the bleachers of the basketball gym. So you know, it's uh, kind of one of those got the slanted roof. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, so you don't have a bunch of necessarily. You don't. Not all that space is usable. No, no, yeah. no. So and that's part of it. A lot of people say, "Hey, can I use your? Can, I, can you send me your workout? I want to do it here." Well, when I was at Copper's Cove, Coach Welch had, had built a deal. You know, I mean, he he's the one that designed that annex. And our annex was had the weight room was ninety six hundred feet, so we had space. Yeah. And, but and I didn't. I didn't. We didn't have all the money for all the fancy racks and stuff like I have at Del, at Del Valley. So it was set up completely different. So the workout that I had there was based on, in large part, my numbers, the sport, and what what space do I have, and what equipment can I? How can I fit all this in logistically? Right. So those are all things that you have to that you have to think about. You know, how many if you've got space for for twenty or for forty kids in that room and you've got eighty more, you can't lift them all at the same time. Right. So that that you've got to start thinking about things like that. Uh, you know, and then it, coming into you know, like you were saying, you're, in football they're about to come in season. You know, and, and so those you have to take those considerations. But I'm always gonna going to look at those things right there. Those four things right there are going to be the things that I look at first before I start writing anything down. So why then is it important for athletes to continue lifting in season? Uh, and then, and so I'm going to throw that out there. And then you mentioned, you know, over that in season program is bare bones because of the time issue. So what, what lifts should, should programs be focusing on when they're in season? Well, in season, like I said, the eight-hour rule. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to start with the half-twos, the big ones that I have to. I'm going to have, like I said earlier, my flossy, ground-based multi-joint movements. Okay, so one thing that we're always going to do in a program that I develop, we're going to do a couple things. These are guarantees. We're going we're gonna to pull, we're going to squat, and we're going to press. Those are three things we're going to do. And and it, and how I do them, I, you know, I'm gonna. You've got back squats, you've got front squats. We're gonna, like I told you earlier, we're gonna do a single leg movement. Uh, we're gonna press. We're not just gonna bench press, but we're gonna overhead press. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna clean. If I if I, if you came in and said, Coach, we got one time time for one lift. You know, that's all we've got time for. We're gonna do a clean variation. Yeah. Because I I can work, I can work three or four different things within that clean. I can work my, my, I can have you pull, do a clean pull. Then I can have you slide RDL it down to your thigh to right above the knee, pause. Then I can have you do a hang clean. And then I can have you front squat it, drop it and repeat it. Yeah. And if I want to add a push press on there, I can do that. So I'm just, I can, I can kill every bird with, with that one lift. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. So, uh, but I, we're going to always do those things right there. Uh, Another thing with the end season, you know, because of the shorter and shorter time, but I'm also I'm going to probably decrease the volume on our lower body. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I'm going to do that is because when I say well, they're out there running and practicing two two plus hours every single day. Right. Well, if I come in and, and you know used to it, said, "Hey, we're going to do lighter. We're going to go. We're going to shift to ten or twelve or whatever. We're going to lighten the weight." That you know now people realize that by relative intensity, that's not helping any. 
Right. The volume is what's kicking their butt. It's not the weight. Right. You know? And so I'm going to do decrease volume. Probably, we probably won't do anything over five reps on the lower body during the season. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to, you know, we'll do, you know, we may do, we may do four sets of five, or we may do a set of five and four sets of three or something like that, but we're going to decrease the volume. And then I'm going to have in the off season. I'm going to push you hard. Every four weeks, we're going to we're going to push hard. Probably close to ninety five percent, ninety ninety five percent of training max, at least once every month, mm-hmm. four or five weeks. Well, now I'm on the now on the on like cleans. I may push that probably in a course of a month. I might push it twice. Not, you know, pretty hard. Right. Bench, I might still push once a month. But like squats, I'm not going to push them quite as often. And instead of going 90 or 95%, we may go 85 or 90%. You know? Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I also, I may not load the back as much. I may, we may trans, translate over and start doing more front squats. Um, when we do back squats, it may be on our dynamic effort day, and we may do power squats. Mm-hmm. When we go down, we go disbullet, go parallel or not parallel, but I like ass to the grass myself because it gets hamstring involvement. But we're gonna we're gonna go down, we're gonna pause one one thousand two, then we're gonna explode up. So I'm develop, I, I'm working on rate rate of force production. Uh, I'm they have time under tension, so they've got less weight, but that time under tension is still stressing the system to help make them stronger. I'm still getting the work, the hamstring activation I want because we're below parallel, but I'm not loading their back a lot. Does that make sense? Yes. Yep. Yeah. It's just basically you're looking for different ways to accomplish the same goal, but, but doing it in a way where you're um, uh, not wearing those guys out and adding more stress to muscles that are already fatigued. Yes. You know, I, I mean, now some people say, well, we're going to maintain well, I've always been in the belief, and, and most a lot of coaches that, that that influenced me were, hey, you're either going forward or you're going backward. Yeah. There ain't no in between. Yeah. And so I want to continue to increase strength, but we're just going to do it on the lower body. We're going to do it more conservatively than we would during the season. Yeah. Upper body, I'll, I'll probably push the upper body close to as hard. Now, it'll be a little bit different because – I'll do, uh, instead of doing a normal grip bench, I'm going to use what I call a hand fit grip, which is about basically the same position that your hands, it's not a true close grip, but it's close enough that where your hands would fit if you're an offensive or defensive lineman fitting Yeah. on your extension. Uh, we're going to do uh, neutral grip. If, now, if I had the, the, the uh, Swiss bars, if I had enough of those to go around, we would do those up for our bench and we would use a neutral grip. Uh, but I don't have that yet. I will down the road. Uh, but on our dumbbell bench and dumbbell incline, we'll put the dumbbells in a neutral position. In other words, so the dumbbells are your palms are facing one another. Yep. And uh, we'll do our presses there because that takes stress off that AC joint that's already getting pounded on uh, during practice. But I'm right. still, and I'm, I'm working, again, I'm working that hand fit position because when you fit somebody, you want your thumbs up. Right, and that's what it, that's what I'm I'm training with that. So I'll, I'll do that on the upper body, uh, but the big thing is I want to keep pushing it because I want to. I've got to maintain body mass because that body mass is what's protecting that skeletal system of those athletes. Right. And then another thing in the season is if they if they if they get weaker during the season, they know it. 
They know it, and they're get, it hurts their confidence. I want them to get stronger, and then I can tell them, hey, them other cats ain't working like you are, and now we're stronger than them, you're going to whip their ass on the field. Right. And so I, it's a confidence thing. It's a mental thing as much as anything. You're right. That's really a um, maybe an under-the-radar benefit of in-season lifting is that confidence. It's keeping that confidence up that when other guys you know, begin shriveling up over the season, they're losing weight, they're losing strength, you know that by lifting, you're still you're still getting stronger and building on that st- on, on what you accomplished throughout the off season. So that's that's definitely another uh, added benefit to training in the off season. You mentioned some things that you do kind of in your prehab stage of 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 lifts that that you can do to help prevent injury. What how do you handle athletes who are banged up or injured during the season? What are some lifts or movements that are best for for those guys? Well, the, the easiest thing is, if they can't do it, don't try and make them. You know, right. if, a, if a guy's got, you know, say for example, a guy's got real bad. I got a guy right now, he's a runner, he jumps, he does all this stuff. He's one of those He's one of those guys that's got about 5% body fat. I mean, he's, he's wound about as tight as they come. Well, I got him doing uh, yoga this summer, and that helped him quite a bit. But he, he, he's had a case, an ongoing case on and off of patella tendonitis. Can't, so to squat a whole bunch bothers him. Yeah. Well, I don't want him losing that strength. So we'll squat him when he can't. If it bother, I tell him, when it starts, you stop. Well, then the other thing is I can work those same muscles. I can get the quads. I can actually get more hamstring involvement and more glute involvement. I can get everything I can get from the squat with a pull, whether it be a clean pull, a sumo deadlift, but some kind of a pull from the ground. Yeah. So say I've got somebody that's got some ankle mobility problems. They can't, you know, my middle son uh, hurt his ankle in college and couldn't squat. He didn't squat step for quite a while. He'd lost some mobility in that ankle. And uh, when they did the surgery, well, instead of trying to beat a dead horse, we started pulling. And we did, you know, I would substitute a pulling movement from the floor to for that squatting movement. So that's the things I'll do. I'll take it on an individual basis based on what they can and can't do. Yeah. And we'll go from there. Well, so I, I don't know how much control you have over this now or, or, or what y'all did when you were at Cove, but how do you or have you in the past structured practices so that athletes are peaking on on game day? You know, you you, you sort of see like with, with uh, the Chip Kellys of the world where – they're, they're now kind of ramping things up as they get closer to game day. You know, they take a little bit of break and then ramp it up. The, the, the way it's been done forever is you kind of taper it off. Uh, you know, Monday and Tuesday are pretty intense, and then you taper off as you get closer to game day. How do you all handle that or treat that? Well, you know, what Chip Kelly does, the reason they're, they're, they ramp up, they don't ramp up necessarily the intensity. They ramp up the, the work capacity. They ramp up. They reduce the rest. They 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 you know they're going 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 nonstop because they need high work capacity for this type of offense. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, you know, what we do, we have a, and I've never used this before going to No Valley, and, and at first I didn't go in real fan of it, but it's it's growing on me. Is the rack performance? Yeah. And yep. uh, it's got like a, a clock, a timer, and then like you can. You know, you program it in, and it'll have like you can have three people or four people or whatever. Yep. <laughs> Excuse me. And you put your exercises in per rotation, so you've got however many rotations you've got one within the, the the time you've got, and you you set how much time lifting time is, 
how much recovery or transition time there is, and so forth. And it, it stays on a clock, and it keeps those kids on a clock. So during the season, and, and even actually for us during the off season, we our, our athletic period is fourth period. See, at Cove, we had a first period, and, and I mean, so it was easy. And kids were dressed and ready to go before the period ever started. And as soon as that bell rang, boom, we were rolling. Well, you know, because we only we didn't have to contend with with undress. We just had to contend with redress. Yeah. Well, at Del Valley, we got to contend with both because we have fourth out, fourth period. So uh, on an eight period day or seven period day, whatever it is. So uh, they come in, they hustle over, and they get left. Well, I got I got forty minutes to get done what I need to get done. And so that rack performance has really helped us to stay on on task and go and I can set the workout however I want it. And, you know, most, if you were looking at how people talk straight training and, Hey, you need more recovery time than that and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it kind of challenges that by how you set it up. They're still getting enough recovery time, but it's going. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're moving. So they're not just standing and waiting. Right. So me, me and you and two other guys are at a station. Well, we got back squats. We got exercise two. You know, maybe it's a it's a shoulder movement. Exercise three might be back extensions. Exercise four is spotter. Okay, so the, the only recovery you're getting is that 34 seconds when you're spotting that guy. Well, then you're changing weight and you're rocking and rolling. You're under the bar because you're next. So three guys are working. One guy's recovering. Right. And so they're going. They're going at a rapid pace. So. Uh, it, that works out well because you've got, we get a lot of work done in a short period of time and it, incre- it, it allows for increase of work capacity. The only thing that I've had with that that I hadn't really, that I've had to really stress is those guys have to know, like when, when they're working, it's green. The thing's green, the clock's green. When it's green, you work with great technique. You do your rep. <laughs> I'm allowing plenty of time for that rep, that set of reps. I want them perfect. Right. When that thing turns, when that thing turns red, now you run like a madman and move around and change. But yeah. you got, I had to train those guys like that because they were going fast. They, it didn't matter green or red. They were going like crazy people. Well, then their technique got sloppy. Yeah. And I, I didn't want that because that's when you get people hurt. So I said, Hey, when it's green, I'm giving you the time you need. You do it right yeah. with perfect technique. And then when it's red, now we shift it into overdrive. And that's worked pretty well. Yeah. How have you uh, either, like I said, currently or in the past, how have you handled Saturdays after games, Saturday lifting and running, things like that? What are some things that y'all do uh, during that time? <clears throat> well, uh, it comes, you know, we, we were, everybody came. Our kids were all there. Saturdays was a work day. And so they came in, they lifted. It was more of a fast-paced lift like I was just describing. Uh, was the the weight was in a mid range anywhere from sixty five to probably seventy five or eighty percent. We got our work done. Then we took them out and then we would do strides, hundred yard strides, and uh, just basically get a heck of a sweat going. And then we'd stretch them really good. They would go shower. We'd go to film. At, at Del Valley, it's a different animal because Del Valley is a very large district uh, land landmass wise. And a lot of those kids, they come from, from lower socioeconomic area. They don't have but maybe one car, two cars, parents work and whatnot. If they don't ride the bus, they don't get there. 
Yeah. Well, buses aren't running. They're not running on Saturday. So, uh, he, he, Coach Burton makes Saturday's voluntary attendance. If you can get there, you can get there. And what they'll do is uh, I'll have a workout for them. They'll pull their workout sheet. Coach, I'm usually not there on Saturday, but one of the, that's pretty easy because one of my guys that was with me at Cove and and, know, and has been a straight coach for Coach Southern at Huntsville and knows how I want things because he worked with me for about 10 years at Cove, Braden Cover. He's there on Saturdays because he's the D.C. there, so he's there. And so he'll kind of be able to oversee that more. But they'll come in and they'll do, do a workout more fast-paced. And then uh, we're gonna we put on a, a massage on the a massage deal off of YouTube on the on the TV we've got up there the big screen, and they'll do they'll do some yoga, and then uh, uh, we've got two huge walk-in tubs. One's cold, one's hot. Uh, they'll go in and do do tub therapy, and then they'll just head on home. They we you know they don't watch film or anything because those kids you know like I said you may. You might have out of a hundred kids, you might have thirty of them there. Right, right. And if, if they want to stay and watch film they, with us, they can stay, or with those guys, they can do so. But it's not, it's not mandatory. So it's a little bit different. Yeah, I've, it's different. I've handled different both ways. Right. You mentioned this earlier uh, in your in our conversation how uh, when you were kind of coming up as a, as a coach, there were like eleven or twelve strength coaches uh, in the nation. Now. That there's a definite growing trend in high schools, especially to have a full-time certified strength coach uh, on staff. Uh, why is that an important position for high school athletics, particularly in in this day and age? You know, I've said for years. I got certified, uh, like you said, 25 years ago, 1994. Should have done it way earlier. Could have, but I was being hard-headed and I didn't need it and this and that. And then finally pulled my head out of my backside and and got it. Uh, and, and everywhere I've gone, it's never, it's until this job at Del Valley, it never predicated whether I got a job or not. Coach yeah. didn't care. They could have cared less. You know, eventually Coach Welsh would use it to our benefit because he would tell parents or everybody else, hey, we, at one time at Cove, I had, I had, uh, me, uh, Missy, Missy Mitchell McBeth, who's up at, uh, Byron Nelson now, used to be at TCU, and our trainer. We we were all CSCS, and then I had probably six or seven guys that were USA weightlifting certified uh, level one. Braden Braden Cobra was one. I had several of them, so we had a lot of certified guys, and, and coach would use that to his advantage. But um, it's never predicated whether I got a job. But I've been saying for years that the time is going to come when that's going to be a, a thing they've got to do. Yeah. Well, you know, at the NCAA level, Division One had them, and some FCS has had them for a long time. But D two guys, it was a guy on staff or whatever. D three, they didn't, they just couldn't afford them. Right. Well, NCAA now has said you will have them. And no, no, any sport coach that works with an athlete in, in strength and conditioning must be CSCS or college certified strength or strength certified. Period. No questions. If not, you can't do it. And it's starting to work down. You know, a lot of your bigger schools now are getting them. Uh, some of your smaller schools, they, they can't necessarily afford that. Uh, but they could afford to send a coach on staff that has a passion for that to pay for it and say, hey, you go take this test. If you pass it, we'll pay for it, you know, kind of like they do with the math or any other cert. Right, uh, right. But I've said it for years because, you know, you're just talking about student-athlete safety. Uh, you know, you, you have always heard that, in, you know, in Texas, where well, you can't, you know, there's no – Schools are immune, you know, have immunity from lawsuits. When I, 
Well, that's only true unless they can prove negligence. Right. If they can prove negligence, whether it be willful, willful or unwillful, in other words, you didn't, you knew you were doing something wrong or you didn't. If they can prove that, then then you got problems. Yeah. So you, you're not, you're not certified or anything. You had you had a, a two weight training classes and then you lift on your own down at the gym or whatever. But you've never been formally trained. And then a kid gets hurt under your watch, and they go to court, and they get you on the stand and say, "Hey, what you know? What's your background?" Well, I had a couple classes in college, or I have a kinesiology. Okay, great. What what background do you have in strength training? Uh, I don't. Well, now the lawyers, man, they're going to get after you. And I've yeah. said that for a long time because you know. But if you have a, if you've got being a CFCS, does that mean I know everything? No. That means that I have I've proven that I can I have the minimal knowledge necessary to to be safe and, yeah. and, and to have credibility in the area of strength training. You know, that's critical to me. Uh I, I would recommend if you don't if you can't afford one, you pay for somebody on staff to get it. You know? Yeah. Um uh, but it's you know it goes back to this. Would you know and in this question, would your principal have an English teacher teaching uh chemistry or physics? No, yeah, no, they wouldn't. They ain't doing it. But but you know what? They're gonna they're gonna put a, somebody in there who's got the term coach in front of their name, who may or may not know their you know what they're doing. They're gonna put them in charge of working with four hundred kids or three hundred kids or whatever it is. You know, and it's kind of like things have changed. You know, back in the day, we had a single teacher in a one room schoolhouse, and they taught every subject, and they only scratched the surface of the knowledge available that they should be taught. Strength conditioning isn't isn't any different. It's not simply lifting weights anymore. It's science based. There's rehabilitation. There's prehab. There's all sorts of things that come into play. It's a basically a full time job, you know. And you've got to stay on. I mean, when I'm not when I'm not writing a program or I'm not coaching, when I'm at work, I am reading something to improve my knowledge on the science and technical knowledge necessary to, to safely and effectively teach our student athletes. It's great, yeah, I mean, great it's, points. It's this, you know, but they'll pay, you know, and it, it, it start, you're starting to see it in the NCAA. You know, they'll pay, uh, you know, Nick Saban $8 million, but them got, yeah, he recruits well, but if, them, if they didn't have anybody working with them, they wouldn't be winning like they did. Right. But you know what? Now they, they realize that Scott Cochran makes eight or $900,000 a year because he's pretty good at what he does. Right, right. So, you know, it's something that to me, for just for the litigation purposes, to protect against that, to give you give you people credibility. Yep. Uh, and, and, to, and, and, and be honest, to get, I mean, the same thing I said with the English teacher teaching math, if you see, if you teach something outside your area, they got to send a letter home to every single kid in that class saying that they have a non-certified teacher in that class. Yet they're going to, they're going to put, uh, put however many kids in a weight room where there's a area of huge risk of injury with a non-certified person. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a great point, coach. And you mentioned uh, you know, a couple of things, credibility and safety. And, and I think that those definitely have to be on the forefront uh, of the minds of any athletic director uh, overseeing a weight, a weightlifting program or, or athletic program that, that that is something that they really need to get done as far as having a certified coach there on their staff overseeing that that program. Uh, well, Coach, I got a couple questions or a few questions for you to wrap up. And, and, and typically I throw in some kind of 
um, more lighthearted questions, but we still got some some meat on the bone that I that I want to get to. Uh, and so these are rapid fire questions. There are air quotes around it, but really they're questions that still related to to what we've been talking about. And you mentioned this a little bit, and I've seen uh, I, I've I've read some things and seen some things online where programs are getting away from one rep one rep maxing uh, in the off season. Uh, what's your opinion on one rep maxes? Is that still relevant? I, I still use them. Uh, I, I do try to do it no more than twice a year, and I never do it with unless an athlete has a significant training base. Uh, and why I use it is once I've got them down technically taught, and they're, I know it's going to be they've got some training time. I drum that you know they're not we're not starting the school year with it or whatever. I'll do it just so I can get a pretty good idea to be able to set the percentages that I use, because when you're training with large groups, I still use like the control of percentages that they're doing. Yeah. And so I, I said, I, I don't use a one rep max. I use a training max. And I, I set that training max up off of the one rep max. Uh, and then once I have that training max in place, I found that I don't have to, I don't have to, t- I really could get away with not ever testing the once a year, but I, but most coaches want, still want to know in the spring, Hey, where are we at? And so we'll test, we'll test about in November for like for football, we'll test in November or December. And then we'll test again right before spring break. And that's it. Uh, I won't test. I've got numbers on everybody. Now, if I don't have numbers on somebody, I'll let them just kind of work at their own pace. And as they build it, they build some training time under the bar that I will get with them. And I will, I will, based on what I see in my experience, I'll set their training max. And it, once I do that, it may take me, you know, a couple of couple of weeks to get it right where it should be. But then I'll set that, and I won't one rep max them again until our time comes around. So if I'm a high school kid and um, I'm, I'm I'm heading to school, and and again, depending on where you go to school, sometimes you might have athletics first period. You may have it in the middle of the day. You may have it at the end of the day, but. Give me some ideas. What is the best thing that, that I can eat before and then after a workout? Well, I mean, you want to basically stay with your macros. You know, uh, you want some some protein, some carbs, but you want some protein, some form of protein, whether it be some jerky or uh, some cheese. Uh, string cheese is good. Yogurt is good. And then you want some carbs as well. Um, and, you know, carbs, you know, you could, I mean, if, you know, you could eat a couple pieces of strained cheese and drink a Gatorade pre-workout. Yeah. Um, and then post-workout, you want a, a three to four to one carb to protein ratio. You know, everybody's big on the protein. All carbs are carbs are, are the devil. You know, all these different diets that people are on. Kids don't need to be on that. Carbs are gasoline. And yeah. these kids are burning. You know, I had, we had a, we we're fortunate at Cove. We had a, a lady who... Uh, was basically a sports nutritionist. She had her, she had all she didn't do to get her PhD and it was do her dissertation. She had all the coursework, all the big names that you see, Juan Jose Antonio, Richard Kreider, all those people that are big in the, in the sports nutrition world. They were her classmates. I mean, so she was really good. And I had her do a workup on my oldest son at the time who was playing for us at Cove. And he was a multi-sport guy. He played, you know, football. And then I made him lift in a powerlifting meet. And then he did baseball and track. And he worked out like we did. And he's going hard. 
and for him, based on what he was doing every day, it was for him to, to put on any significant amount of weight. He was going to need between 7,500 and 10,000 calories a day. Wow. Well, that's a full-time eating gig right yeah. there, you yeah. know? And so, um, you, you know, you just can't, it, it's hard for those kids to be able to do that. So you want to, you want to help them as best you can. And the best thing you can do on that, on that carb to protein ratio, there's two things. One carb, Carbs are the gas. They replace the glycogen source within your muscle. Protein stops, it stops uh, muscle degradation. In other words, if your body doesn't have enough energy to it and it can't, the glycogen's gone and you're not replacing that, well, it starts breaking down muscle tissue to convert it to glucose to be able to use for energy. So you lose muscle. And so you want both of them. They did studies on this. I, I went, there's a guy, named, there's a great book called Nutrient Timing. It's been out for probably 10 years now, but it was written by John Ivey, sports uh, nutritionist at UT. And uh, he, he said that, you know, basically there's a window. Now they've changed that. Now the window's a little bit larger. But post-workout, you want to get something in your body 30 to 45 minutes post-workout. Yep. And you have, you have phases. So you have what's called the anabolic phase. The anabolic phase is from the end of your workout. If you hit that window and you get that food in there, it starts an anabolic or a growth phase. And you can maintain that anabolic phase for six to seven hours if you hit that window, then about an hour and a half later eat something, or maybe it's your lunch or whatever, like for our kids it would be lunch, and then a couple hours later hit a snack, and then a couple hours later eat again. As long as you're eating you know, something of substance, you're going to, you're going to maintain that window, which means you're going to continue to grow. Yeah. And so it's a, that's a, a critical thing. And he said, this is funny. I was at this NFCA coaches conference in San Antonio. This has probably been 18, about 10 years ago, probably 07, 08, something like that. And he's doing it. He's talking, he's doing the, the presentation and the presentation is sponsored by Cytosport, which like makes muscle milk and all those, right? Right. Uh, supplement country. country. He says, well, at the end of this thing, he probably said, he says, I'm probably going to get in trouble with the, with the sponsors here, but the best thing that you can drink post-workout is chocolate milk. Yeah. He, he said it has the perfect ratio that you want of carbohydrate to protein. And so I put together from his, based off his book and stuff, I put together a basic nutrition guide that I send, I give to my kids and then I send it to their parents and it tells them what they need to do pre-workout, during the workout, post-workout, and then just basic uh, guidelines on carbohydrate, protein, fats, whatnot, the good things to eat, but the timing portion of it. And, and I did that at Cole for probably, like I said, eight or uh, probably about eight or 10 years. And we had, our kids would follow it to the T. Some of them would come up and say, hey, I, just, I got this protein. Is it good? And I said, well, it's got 40 grams in it. How many scoops are you supposed to have? They said, two. I said, only take one. I said, you can't assimilate more than 20 grams of the crack. And I said, you need to mix it with this so you're getting more carbohydrate. Because it had like 40 grams of protein and two grams of carbohydrate. Well, that's no good. Right. You know? Right. So I would, I would, do, I would always tell them what to do on that regard. But, yeah. Uh, so that's what we do with that. Okay. Well, you mentioned your sons, and I was – you know, we could, we could, I know, spend a lot of time talking about those guys because they, you had three of them. They're all very successful athletes and football players, and you got to coach all three of them. And, and so I know, and you already mentioned with your oldest son, but was a multi, multi sport athlete. So, so as a strength coach, 
Uh, I'm not even going to ask you where you stand on that issue because I know where you stand on it. But why do you feel is it important for athletes to to be multi-sport athletes? Well, basically, if you go over and study, like, you know, back in the Soviet Union and our Eastern Bloc countries, or even over in Europe and, and places like that now, somebody's got a, a main sport, whatever that sport may be, uh, but they have an off-season. Well, their off-season is not just, look, yeah, they lift weights or whatever, but they have them doing other sports. And so, uh, and the reason is that it, it makes you more well-rounded. You know, it's just like, if you, you know, in our country, we'll have somebody, boy, there's science and math, man, they're good at that, but they don't take any arts. They don't take any band or humanities, so they don't play any athletics. And, and yeah, they're really smart, but they, they have, they're not well-rounded. They're not physically fit. They don't have any appreciation for the arts or whatever. You know, and that goes back in history. I mean, the Greeks said that. If you were a, a, had a great physique and you were super strong, but you didn't have an appreciation for the arts or weren't smart, you were worthless. If you were a, a brainiac and you weren't physically fit, you were worthless. They wanted you to be well-rounded. It's the same way with athletics. So, like, to me, that's back in the day – that was everybody's offseason. So I'm a football player and I'm a skill guy. Okay. Well, I'm going to go, I'm playing football, but I'm going to basketball, then I'm going to track or baseball or both. Uh, I was a lineman. So I, I mean, I'm not, they cut me from the basketball team. So what I do, well, that's where powerlifting was started in this state is, is basically it wasn't developed as a sport just to be a sport. It was developed to fill in between football and track. Yeah. And then, you know, the big guys go throw and throw shot and discus and track. So, you know, it's natural cross-training. It's working other muscles. It's working different movement patterns, different energy systems, and you've got different mental processes than you do in one sport. So, you know, it it helps develop you overall better. Uh, I think, I can't remember, I I don't have the number, but I want to say that that of the people that Ohio State signed a few years ago on their roster – uh, within a period of like three or four years, 90% of them were multi-sport athletes in high school. Yeah, yep. And, and, and in, the, in the NFL, in the last NFL deal, it was like 85% or 90% of all guys drafted ran track in high school. Yeah. So, so you know, they were multi-sport as well. Right. So, you know, it just goes to prove, I mean, you, you, want, you want well-rounded athletes. You don't want... You know, guys that never leave the gym, <coughs> excuse me, or or they play baseball year round. That's why we're having all these overuse injuries in in our. Uh, I just read a thing about the NBA that they're they're really concerned. I mean, super concerned right now because kids are coming out and they're in the NBA for one to two years and their bodies are are so beat up. It's like they've been playing in the NBA fifteen years. Yeah. And they've been there like two years because it's because they played in college and then they played AAU all through high school and they never it never stopped. Right. And they're seeing the same injuries in baseball and softball and volleyball and that because they're overuse. Your body's not meant to do that stuff nonstop. Right. Right. Well, coach, great stuff today. Uh, you kind of talked about just scratching the surface earlier, and I felt like that's what we did. That we could have spent, you know, we could spend all day talking about this stuff. Um, but I'm definitely going to put your your contact information there in the show notes today. So if, if coaches want to get a hold of you and ask you some more in depth questions or you know get into more specifics, they can do so. But really appreciate you coming on and talking with us today and sharing your expertise and knowledge in this uh, in this facet uh, of athletics. And, and just want to wish you the best of luck there at Dell Valley. 
Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me on. Thanks again to Coach Brock. So glad we got to get him on. You know, I first came in contact with Coach Brock at a strength clinic a couple years ago at Huddle High School when he was a speaker and and really enjoyed the things that he had to say, that he had to say. And then I got to work with a guy who coached with with, with Reb at Coppers Cove. And then, of course, there have been several guys on this podcast with ties to Coach Brock and Coppers Cove. And, and whenever I talked to any of those guys about Coach Brock, there was this story that kept coming up, which is pretty amazing. And it's a story I teased a couple of weeks ago. We had Coach Lyons on, so I'll go ahead and tell it now because but it's a great story. Now, I wasn't there to witness this. Uh, this is a secondhand account. So if you really want the, the firsthand account, you have to ask one of those guys. But anyway, so uh, one day, I, I believe this was during a practice, uh, and when Coach Brock was the defensive coordinator, coordinator over there at Cove, um, uh, a kid, I, I don't know if he blew a coverage or something happened. Uh, but anyway, Coach Brock gets him over on the sideline. And he is just ripping this kid, chewing him out, going off on him. And in the middle of his tirade, Coach Brock's false tooth that he has flies out of his mouth without even breaking stride or stopping or, or, or anything like that. He grabs the tooth in midair, catches it in midair, and continues to, to rip the kid without ever breaking stride. And, and so, you know, to me, that just, uh, that pretty much, pretty much sums up the mystique and the legend that is Coach Brock. But, uh, but seriously, whenever I talk with guys who worked for him or coached by him, there's always a definite measure of respect and admiration for him as a coach and as a person that those guys have whenever I talk to him. And I think that it's awesome that he clearly still has a passion for coaching kids and for growing our profession and passing on his knowledge to others. So I, I really do appreciate him coming on and talking with us today. Our quote today goes like this. What you do isn't as important as how you do it. Coaches, whatever you're doing this week, be the best at it. And the best of luck to you during your practices and scrimmages or maybe even games this week. And until next week, keep your pats down. <laughs>